0: welcome to in the 19th century a podcast which looks at art culture and society in the 19th century and its legacy to date many of our interviews and lectures have centered on the western experience with an unintended emphasis on imperial Britain but I'm keen to shift our lens and to refocus our attention to the experience of this revolutionary period um, across all cultures. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Munia Shekab Abudaya who is in Doha, the capital of Qatar. Dr Munia is the Senior Curator of North Africa and Iberia at the Museum of Islamic Art in Doha. She was awarded a PhD from the University of Savon in Paris and is an expert on Western Mediterranean manuscripts and pilgrimage-related um, devotional materials um, of the Islamic world. Dr Munier is also a linguist and holds a degree in literal Arabic and has studied Persian and Turkish languages. She has curated a long list of extraordinary exhibitions at both the Museum of Islamic Art and for other institutions around the world. I'm particularly interested in an exhibition she did um, at the Museum of Islamic Art in 2015 called Qajar Women, Images of Women in 19th Century Iran. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we're going to be talking about some of the objects which featured in that show. Today, Dr. Munia is going to share with us her reflections and expertise on a remarkable group of diverse objects and paintings in the Museum of Islamic Art, and when these objects deeply resonate for her. When I received her list of works, I was enthralled by both their delicacy and their boldness, but also their material qualities. We will look at toolboxes, enamel cup holders, embellished jewellery and paintings and drawings. I'm thrilled to introduce you to Dr Munia Chekab-Abudaya today. Um, hello and welcome Dr Munia, to In the 19th Century and thank you for joining me from Doha today. And thank you also for um, providing such an intriguing and richly diverse um, set of objects for us to discuss. Um, Before we move on to these revered works of art, um, we should mention that the Museum of Islamic Art in Doha has been closed for over a year while a major refurbishment has taken place. And so my first question is really about um, the building itself and the institution. Could you give us just like a brief history of this building and the museum? which is a key landmark in the city of Doha, and about the important role of um, Sheikh Suad bin Mohammed bin Ali Al Thani in establishing the collection.
1: So thank you, Lara, for uh, inviting me to join this uh, this podcast. I'm, I'm really thrilled, and uh, especially because this exhibition, Qajar women, images of women in the 19th century, uh, in 19th century Iran was some an exhibition I worked on between 2014 and 2015 with uh, one of my former colleagues, Dr. Noor Sobris Khan, and we co-curated that exhibition together and we actually had a lot of fun working on this uh, exhibition, uh, just going through the collection and and really um, uh, discovering the treasures of the Museum of Islamic Arts collection, especially in that uh, area. Um, Just to mention a few, maybe a few things, yes, about the Museum of Islamic Arts. The Museum of Islamic Art was inaugurated in November, 2008. uh, And it is, until now, one of the very few museums uh, in the world dedicated only to Islamic art. Um, It has a beautiful building uh, that really became a landmark of uh, Doha's landscape and uh, really holds an international presence on the cultural scene with a unique collection. Uh, The building was conceived by Chinese-American architect I.M. Pei uh, based on um, 14th-century uh, fountain, ablution fountain, in the 9th-century Ibn Tulun Mosque in Cairo, uh, but the interior has so many other um, uh, influences, architectural influences from various regions of the Islamic world. So it is a beautiful building, but also with a, uh, an, an, an astonishing collection. And the collection, in fact, was initiated by Sheikh Saoud bin Mohammed bin Ali Al Thani, uh, who was one of the most prominent art collectors of the last decades. Um, and uh, as chairman for Qatar's National Council for Cultural Arts and Heritage, between 1997 and 2005, he was very influential in the constitution of collections uh, for Qatar museums and for the state of Qatar in general. Uh, Sheikh Saud was an incredible collector and a visionary man uh, who, who really built, if you think about it, it's extraordinary. He built in less than a decade uh, important collections for Qatar, one of which is the beautiful collection of the Museum of Islamic Art, which really holds um, unique pieces uh, of the Islamic world.
0: Thank you. Yes, I think it's um, the building itself is stunning. Um, it just seems to uh, emerge out of the landscape and it's in a beautiful site. It looks like it's overlooking um, the, the bay area, is that right? It's um, close to the water.
1: Yeah, that was a request from, from Pei himself. He wanted to have a special location that would be sort of in between old Doha and the new Doha. So sort of uh, also the um, the overarching uh Um, image of the museum and the the message of the museum is to really put a uh, set a bridge or build a bridge between the past and the present so he really had this idea that he did not want the building to be at some point in the life of urban Doha would be overthrown by another building and so really wanted it to have a special place that would always remain the same that's why he had this idea to actually um, build it in the sea and uh, and we are really uh, building right in the sea and uh, and and yes, it's um, you you can't miss it when
0: you are on the Corniche of Doha. And uh, just to remind us, what date does it reopen?
1: So we're due to reopen to the public in on 5th of October. So in less than uh, two weeks now. That's
0: very soon. Well, I think everyone's going to be, after this conversation, everyone's going to be very encouraged to um, visit Doha and come to this museum. Um, So maybe um, let's move on to our first question about the actual works that you nominated. Um, And the first works I was keen to talk about are that set of 11 gouache drawings um, depicting the daily activities and rituals of women, including things like women buying fabrics, women visiting a doctor, women praying at a mosque, and and my favourite, which is um, an old woman smoking, Nagil with young girls embroidery, which I rather liked. Um, what can you tell us about this extraordinary group of works on paper? Um, are they a complete set, or are they part of a larger group? Um, how, how does it um, work? So yes, I, I chose a few images in fact
1: of this uh, this album because these eleven paintings are actually part of a set of thirty-seven illustrations, which constituted altogether an album. Uh, which features scenes of daily life uh, and activities in Qajar, Iran, let's say roughly between 1850 and 1880. Um, There were numerous albums such as this one that were produced for the foreign market uh, in the late 19th century in Iran. And some other examples actually of these kinds of albums uh, bear uh, captions in English or French. So they were really meant to be uh, made to um, sort of um, provide information and documentation about the society in Iran, uh, but for the the foreign market. And the production, let's say stylistically, really follows the art production that developed from the second half of the 19th century, initiated by a court artist uh, named uh, Abul Hassan Ghaffari, who was also known as Sani al-Mulk. He studied in Italy in the late 1940s and created when he came back to Iran, to Tehran in the 1850s, a school of portraiture uh, for small scale portraits of the Shah Nasrud-Din Shah. And Sani Al-Mulk really uh, revived the production of miniatures and portraits in which the characters that are depicted uh, were much more individualized. And so if you look at the album that I shared uh, a few paintings of, the clothing, the activities themselves really show that such albums were iconographic documentation of the Qajar society and everyday life in Iran at the let's say at the advent of photography because daguerreotypes uh, had already been introduced in Tehran in the 1940s and um, in Tabriz you had also a printing press that was producing lithographed uh, books uh, already since the beginning of the century but Photography, photography documenting the population was democratized really until, uh, really at the last decades of the 19th century. So such albums really played an important role transitioning between um, the more, um, I would say, abstract paintings of the previous decades and the new technological era, which is the introduction of photography uh, at, a, at the end of the century.
0: Oh, fascinating. And this is a bit off script, but who would have been the um, clientele for these albums? Were, were they Western clientele or were they Islamic clientele?
1: No, mainly, let's say, for European, uh, the European market, I yeah. would say, were, for example, given as gifts or were just bought in the, in the, in the markets uh, or bought by Europeans who would travel through Iran, um, since you, you really had with the, the, the Dutch companies and all the South Asian companies uh, and the missionaries as well, travelling, the Christian missionaries travelling to to Iran, you really had um, a huge European uh, clientele for such, uh, such
0: pieces. And is, are these works held in a, in a really beautiful embossed folio or are they um, you know, in a bound book or are they loose?
1: They're supposed to be in albums, so they're supposed to be bound, but a lot of them are unbound at the moment. Like this one has been unbound um, at the moment of its acquisition, but you still have examples of them being uh, sewn and, and bound like any other Islamic manuscript, in fact, yeah, as albums.
0: Well, it's fascinating. It's fascinating also that the artist trained in Italy. Um, yes, yeah, it's. That's uh,
1: that's something that actually was very common even for the rest of the Arab world uh, from in the 19th century, a lot of artists and that's really what created uh, elsewhere, in, let's say in Syria, Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, um, you had a lot of artists who actually went to Italy and or to Rome or to Paris to study fine arts and came back to their home country with a new technical approach to painting, but still looked at uh, the subjects as um, more traditionally, I would say. So there has been like really a transitioning period in the entire 19th century for most of the Islamic world where you really had a new approach to how you depict um, even daily scenes or uh, historical scenes, uh, portraits. Um, technically speaking, uh, I would say, based on the fact that these artists went to Europe to learn these new techniques.
0: Mm, It's a really interesting um, flow of information and skills happening there. Mm -hmm. Let's um, talk about this second painting, which is so striking. It's um, um, Mirza Barber's Portrait of a Lady, and it's quite a large painting on canvas laid down on wood panel, which depicts an ornately dressed woman um, who looks to be playing an oud or some musical instrument Um, She has a white cat at her feet and perhaps a dish of dates by her side. Um, What can you tell us about Mirza Baba and this striking painting? And do we know who the woman is in the portrait?
1: So um, before I get into this painting, I'll I'll give a bit of more context about um, oil paintings in, in, in Iran and how apart from, or let's say, alongside manuscripts and miniature paintings and enamelled works, you really have the introduction of large scale old paintings that really started from uh, the 17th century in Isfahan onwards. And so you, um, you had European artists that came to, uh, to Isfahan to work for Persian patrons and also for the Shah, Shahbas uh, at that time. And a lot of European paintings were also known thanks to diplomatic gifts and engravings. So you had a whole new scale of artworks that were produced but also were introduced in the art scene for artists to look at and to be inspired from. Um, So paintings produced during the Qajar era, the, the 19th century, especially in the first half of the 19th century, were highly influenced by the techniques and the style that was set earlier in Isfahan. This production really included official male portraiture, Hunting scenes, religious figures, but also female portraits of women of the court, like this, uh, this portrait that we are, uh, we are talking about. Um, you, when you look at this painting, you'll see the rich and dense decorations on the fabrics, the jewels, the that are really characteristic of the stylized representations of the luxurious and sophisticated life at the court, the Qajar court. Such portraits, especially of single persons, were symbols of the dynasty and of the monarchical propaganda, uh, especially the, during the time of Pathali Shah, uh, who reigned between 1797 and 1834. Uh, his royal workshop including, included important artists such as Mirza Baba, but also Mir Ali, which we will talk about for the next painting, uh, or Abdullah Khan, uh, to mention only the one, some of the most prominent, and Mirza Baba, in fact, was Fatih Shah's earliest court painter. So we're really looking at um, one of the earliest paintings that were done during that time. Um, the female portraits, like this lady playing, she's playing the tar, actually, which is a very popular Iranian uh, instrument in the 19th century. Um, this painting really embodies the development of a new ideal of beauty, which really includes very specific criteria. Uh, If we look at the details of how the face, for example, has been featured, we have elongate shapes and proportions, um, first of all, of the the female body, but also the very thick and marked eyebrows, uh, the, 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 uh, the monobrow that we look at most of 19th century Iran, which was really an ideal of beauty, which is called in in, in, um, in, in Persian. Uh, The almond shaped eyes, the aquiline nose, uh, the hands and feet tinted with henna, all of these decorative elements, plus the the elements of the scene, the patterns on the trousers, which uh, feature the botte pattern, very specific as well to, to Iran. And the jewelry that was worn by this lady who's playing the tar uh, really evoke the Qajar fashion and the style of this period. The shape of the painting, if you have a look at it, it has a very, um, uh, it, it could have been fitting inside an arch uh, in and so it, it used to be hung probably on the walls of the palaces but as they evoke scenes of probably the harem's life Uh, they would have been displayed in the private sections of the palace. Dance and music were very popular in the harem of Fatali Shah and the later Shah uh, Nasruddin Shah. So many female dancers and musicians performed and also lived at the court, where they were even married sometimes uh, to members of the court. So this is what we're looking at. We, we're looking at probably probably a female courtier who is also a musician and who is here to entertain, but she's also part of the harem's life.
0: And the white cat. Is there a symbolism behind the little cat?
1: Uh, so the cat is a very interesting uh, uh, element because you, you find it in a lot of paintings and rabbits as well mm-hmm. and I did ask um, several scholars who are really specialized on that type of production and there's not been much research on that particular topic because also the, the cat is looking at the, vis- the, the, um, is looking t- at the visitor or looking at, uh, at us so that's also very intriguing. It's I think part of um, the elements that were always drawn within these scenes, like you uh, you you mentioned the dates, but on the painting you also have the pomegranate. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got several elements that are recurring in these types of production. So I guess the cat uh, is part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> who knows why specifically a white cat, probably a Persian cat. Yeah. Um, that's that's extremely intriguing and also very uh. Very interesting to see.
0: It's a really beautiful portrait. There's just so much to look at when you're looking at it. It must be spectacular when you're standing in front of it in the gallery space.
1: Yes, and it will be in the new galleries, actually. It will be displayed with the next portrait we will be talking about, which is oh. the portrait of Fatalisha. So
0: it's, uh, yes. Yes, yeah, so this is this next portrait is a portrait of a man. It's a, a, uh, another quite large oil painting, by um, Mir Ali. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Mir Ali. And it's dated, I understand, 1816. And it's got a really striking palette. It's quite opposite to the Mirza Barber portrait, which is very rich in colours and very jewel-like. This one is a kind of reduced palette of blackness, of a stone colour and a red and a green. Um, firstly, who do we know who this man is and what is he actually holding? And also, what do we know about um, Mir Ali? So um, this portrait is actually a portrait
1: of the Shah Fatali Shah, uh, which I mentioned uh, um, uh, as one of the first Shahs in uh, the Qajar period. Uh, and um, it's a bit darker in tones because the, the let's say that the, the condition of the painting is not uh, as good as uh, this other painting of this lady with the tar. So there's probably a bit of, um, the, the colours have been a bit tarnished through, over time. I think there's been some varnish that has been added at a later period, which uh, unfortunately damaged probably the, the, the pigments. Uh, so that's, that explains the, the, the more subtle colours. Um, so uh, Mir Ali was very well known for his large-scale portraits of Pat Halisha, uh, such as this example of, of the Mia collection. He was known to have executed frescoes, as well as oil paintings of the sovereign alone or accompanied by members of his court. There's also other portraits that are much smaller in scale that show really Talisha stand, uh, stand, standing or sitting, and all of these uh, court members um, surrounding him. As opposed to the portraits of women that we've seen uh, in the, in, uh, earlier on, uh, these were used, as I said, in private sections, the portraits such as the portrait of the Shah, uh, which really show and embrace the whole um, idea of the um, masculinity and that the sovereign's power, especially with this the um, the representation of the long beards, which is really characteristic of that period and of these types of portraiture. Um, as opposed to the, as I said, the portraits of women, these portraits of the sovereign would this time decorate the palaces and were would be displayed in the public um, sections of uh, of the palace as really signs of the royal power. and the, so really these would belong to the public sphere. This painting and the production in general highlights, Also the notion of monumentality in 19th century Iranian art, which goes really side to side with the global expression of modernity during this specific century worldwide. Um, I I think I really interpret it like that, where you look at um, the fact that Qajar Iran, like the rest of the world, is marked by unprecedented economic growth, as well as the transformation of its society, uh, its urbanization, massively, like really the 19th century and the whole world with the whole idea of industrialization is is, a, is an epic moment in human history. Um, so as it is the case, as I said earlier, um, as, as well as in the Arab world at the same time, Kajab painting really can be defined by this ambivalence between the desire for modernity that's merged with traditional artistic and cultural elements. If you look carefully at this painting and even the earlier, the the previous painting, we notice a high level of detail that's still drawn from centuries of well-established Persian miniature tradition. So the detail of the miniature paintings in manuscript, but that is now adapted to new techniques and a new support, which is the, uh, the canvas. So this time it's adapted to monumental supports And so I think this notion of monumentality was also clearly influenced by the quality of life and splendour that characterised the Qajar court's uh, development in in Tehran, actually.
0: Mm. And was the introduction of painting on canvas something that was brought over from the West, or was it something that was occurring um, simultaneously?
1: Yes, that was mainly through Armenian merchants who... uh, Settled in Isfahan in the 17th century. Um, so when I mentioned earlier how Isfahan really was really uh, the start of this tradition of oil paintings, uh, you had, of course, you had also also other Europeans that um, um, that that came and settled in 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 Isfahan, especially Christian missionaries. But Armenian merchants had actually their own district, and a lot of them were artists and. They really introduced that um, these monumental uh, portraits, and which are
0: oil oil on canvas. Mm. Again, that one must be also quite spectacular when you see it um, in in reality on the wall. Yes. Have a lot of wall power. And what we were talking about, what he might be holding is it is it a sword that he's holding? Yes, in fact, yeah. yes, absolutely, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Which were
1: also part of the royal treasuries, and these are all symbols of power, so these are uh, the jewellery, the, the arms and armour, all of these really reflect the idea of um, wanting to present themselves and their, um, their power to the public sphere, to anyone, ambassadors or whoever would really come and visit them officially at the court, so that was really to impress visitors.
0: Mm. And just a a message to listeners that um, I will definitely post images of these works onto our um, In the 19th Century Instagram site so you'll be able to see them that way um, uh, in the first instance. Um, So now let's talk about something very different to the portraits we've just been discussing I was really startled to see this sort of prosaic object, um, this toolbox which you had nominated, and clearly it's not an ordinary toolbox. It has a highly decorative lid, a very rich red interior, and these tools are sort of beautifully, aesthetically arranged in within the box. Um, who would have owned this toolbox and what is it for? So, um, first of all, this toolbox is
1: very characteristic uh, in terms of decoration of a new symbolic repertoire adopted uh, by Iranian artists by the late 17th century onwards, namely the adaptation of Christian iconography and imagery into the artistic production. In the case of this toolbox, we see uh, the representation of uh, the Virgin Mary and child, and such representations were more accessible in Iran as I said, thanks to the circulation of European uh, engravings via the Christian missionaries and European merchants. During the 19th century, there were numerous lacquered objects that were produced in Iran, including these boxes, but also pen boxes, mirror cases, um, um, even table tops, you know, uh, they were all lacquered and with representations of uh, various scenes, sometimes these kinds of um, European scenes or or depictions of uh, Christian iconography. These were destined for the local market as well as for foreigners. On this specific object, uh, we see um, also on the sides of the Virgin Mary and child, two bearded men bowing respectfully in front of Mary and Jesus, while two younger women on the lower part of the scene are holding offerings in their hands. The interior of the box uh, includes different small tools, uh, and this, um, the tools indicate that this was a toolbox for a jeweler. and it includes even small weights, very, very tiny weights, and a miniature scale that was probably used for uh, weighing precious materials like gold, silver. So this was we, we wouldn't know who was the owner of that toolbox, but uh, probably a jeweler and maybe a jeweler of the court. Uh, or this would have been um, uh, given as a diplomatic gift to, um, I don't know, an envoy or an ambassador of another foreign country who would have either kept it in his collection or given it to another jeweler. But there are all these tiny little tools that were used for jewelry making.
0: Mm, it's absolutely superb. And I didn't pick up that the lid was actually Christian iconography, which is you know quite unexpected, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, a
1: lot of people would uh, would ask themselves why would you have uh, such an iconography, but it is very much the case not only in Iran in that period, and but also in South Asia. From in fact the 16th century, in uh, the, at the Mughal court, you had a lot of Christian engravings uh, that were um, brought by again Europeans. Uh, and that were um, gathered at the the, the royal libraries. And these really very much um, influenced the local artists. So you have, for example, in the Museum of Islamic Arts collection, you have a beautiful painting, a Mughal painting by Khadogh Beg, who is a very important, very prominent artist at the Mughal court um, of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Shah Jahan or Jahangir. Um, This painting shows uh, Saint Jerome in Melancholy, which is um, (laughs) uh, directly a depiction taken from um, an engraving by Albrecht Dürer. Mm. And so um, these really were were very, I would say not very common, but like you you have very um, numerous examples of these in the Iranian production, but also the South Asian production.
0: I think this is going to be really surprising to listeners, um, you know, to start to understand that confluence of ideas that were clearly um, being transported between Europe and um, the Middle East and North mm-hmm. Africa. Um, so much Absolutely. more fluid than people realise, I think. Um, it's, that's really, really interesting. Um, so now we're going to turn to two um, quite exquisite objects. They're little enamel coffee cup holders called Zaaf. Um, they're tiny and they're delicate. They're about 5.2 centimetres high. The interior is enameled in iridescent turquoise and the exterior shows large rose-like flowers, perhaps they're peony roses, I'm not sure, surrounded um, by an inset portrait of a woman. They're clearly special and I sort of got the impression they're quite intimate objects. And I wondered, um, do we know who the woman in the portrait is? And what is the story of these cup holders?
1: So, these um, these two enameled zarfs are actually part of a larger set of six pieces, uh, which were all used as coffee cup holders, but actually cup holders for tea or coffee that could have been used for tea or coffee. Um, so, um, these are extremely delicate and were most certainly part of. Court treasuries or royal treasuries, and used only by really the courtiers or the uh, the elite of the Qajar society. Uh, it, it probably was very delicate to use a, a cup holder instead of touching the cup itself. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't burn yourself, basically. Um, each of the pieces bear uh, this medallion that features uh, that that, that feature portraits of men and women. Um, uh, These objects were really made out of very precious materials, it would have been gold, silver, or gilded copper, and they were used at the court, but also, as I said, were part of the royal treasuries. Um, Their shape, in fact, there's been a few studies about this, and they might have been inspired by a very famous production of enamel drinking cups in the city of Augsburg in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was very popular and widely spread in the 18th century and really shares similar features and techniques. In the whole set of the Mia collection, the medallions have portraits of either religious figures uh, but also these European women. So uh, that's what uh, what I shared uh, with you. Um, and um, these representations of European women, again, are part of the whole vocabulary that starts to uh, to, to uh, travel and be, uh, and influence the artistic production from the 17th century onward. The actual um, portraits of European women are called in Persian Zani, uh, Zani Farangi, and they, so they have an actual, let's say, term. There is a terminology around these uh, such portraits, and these were very fashionable, from the 17th century onwards
0: mm, they're absolutely beautiful i think um after seeing them everyone would be wanting to have a coffee cup holder like that they're really exquisite it must make the the drinking of the coffee or the tea quite a ritual and quite a special event um so the last two objects um, are really very much all about turquoise um you've selected two belt buckles made in the 19th century. They contain a radiating spray of inset turquoise set in a bright gold. Um, The first buckle is quite large, measuring 16 by 18 centimetres, I understand. Um, And it really must have made quite an impression when the owner was wearing it. I'm sure if they walked into the room with this buckle on, it would immediately um, draw attention to them. Um, So what sort of person would have worn these belt buckles and um, were they reserved for special occasions? So as we've seen with the, with the Tsar production,
1: jewelry and enameled objects were luxury items um, of the aristocracy and the court, and were part of the rural treasuries again. This belt buckle, because it's actually one belt buckle, but that's uh, divided into two pieces that you have to attach together to be worn. Uh, so as you mentioned, is made of gold and set with turquoise stones, and the turquoise has been incised and then inlaid with gold. And it bears motifs, really beautiful floral motifs, but also inscriptions. And these inscriptions have a few lines of poetry. So I had read the inscription when I prepared the exhibition um, uh, in in 2015. And I'll I'll give you the the translation. The poetry reads, uh, lady, may I be your ransom, sacrificed for your hair, the ransom of the mistress, the ransom of your face. when you look at these types of pieces, there are really unique pieces to start with. And they are, most of these high quality jewelry of the Kadra period could have been worn both by men and women. You see, as we've seen with the painting of Patali Shah earlier, the amount of jewelry he's wearing, men and especially the Shah would be wearing a lot of, uh, of jewelry. Uh, that we could think would be worn normally by women, but that was, again, a, a royal emblem. And in fact, it's not just in Iran. Again, to make another connection with South Asia, uh, the Mughal rulers, and even later, um, maharajas would always be portrayed, even in photography portraits, with um, uh, numerous jewelry pieces, turban ornaments, necklaces, archers, rings, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And belts as well, belt buckles. So um, these were really part of the courtly items that would have been worn uh, in in the palaces um,
0: by both men and women. It's actually amazing. You say that the turquoise is inlaid with gold because when I was looking at the image, I'm thinking this is a really unusual uh, piece of turquoise. How is it getting that beautiful inflection and? variation but i didn't realize it was inlaid with gold which must have required a considerable skill to actually produce absolutely
1: i think so the 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 turquoise was incised first with the inscription and then the inscription the engraving of the inscription was inlaid with sheets of gold so yes that requires uh, numerous hours of of work Uh, even for the if you look at the rest of the belt buckle the gold parts are really enhanced with filigree and with other techniques that really show the high quality of craftsmanship as well in the
0: Royal workshops. Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Well, I have to thank you so much for sharing um, these objects with us. It's been absolutely remarkable um, to hear about the diversity of material, about the confluence of influences across um, through Persia and through um, European influences, and how these op- precious objects came to be. Um, Dr. Munia Shekhab Abudaya, thank you very much for joining us today. And I wish you all the very best for the reopening of the Museum of Islamic Art. And I hope that the time we have spent together reveals more about Islamic art and culture for our listeners. Doha has a very rich history and an inspiring group of important cultural institutions. Um, There's really so much to see in this city um, beyond, you know, World Cup football matches and the other sporting events. There really is so many cultural institutions of which the Museum of Islamic Art is certainly a jewel in the crown. I hope this podcast encourages people to visit your museum and to embrace the rich history and the material splendor of Islamic art and culture. Thank you.
1: Thank you again for uh, having invited me to share a little bit of our collection. And uh, we are really surely um, happy to welcome uh, again all visitors to the museum and have this place really filled with, uh, with people again.